This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today I have a guest who is a professor, a poet, a translator, and it is Mark S. Burroughs. Thank you so much, Mark, for being my guest today. Delighted to be with you, Lisa. Your publisher was so kind to send me a bunch of books, and I'm so happy we can pick over some of these and and dig into them a little bit. It's um, two books of translations. One is Meister Eckhart's Book of Secrets, Meditations on Letting Go and Finding True Freedom. Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, Meditations for the Restless Soul. And I I should mention this one um, and the other one are also done with John M. Sweeney as well. And then I... Um, one I, I had not heard of, what I'm really just excited to get into, is Prayers of a Young Poet, Rainer Maria Rilke. Did I say Rilke correctly? Or is it something, you say, is it pronounced a different way? Rilke. Mm-hmm. Rilke? Rilke. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and then your own book of poems, The Chance of Home, and uh, hoping we can mm. cover them all and and read some things in there. But um, this is a delight because I I find poetry such a a balm for the soul and and um, and mm. and a challenge too. In our times, um, when everything is so fast paced, the um, it's a joy for me to slow down and read something with with mm. spaciousness and give my mm. um, I guess give my body a chance to catch up with all the emotions and, and all the rest of it because it's mm. just like an information dump that we live in <laughs> today so mm, that's um, for sure mm-hmm. maybe you can talk a little bit first about um, some of how you got into translating and, and some of the things that you're doing and tell us a little bit about yourself well I, I've been translating from German uh, from my Actually, from my late adolescence, I I began learning German and speaking German as a young teenager and eventually ended up living in Germany for a year. Uh, What was what we call a gap year now? It didn't exist back then. Took a year off and lived with my relatives in the Black Forest. My my grandparents, uh, siblings, they immigrated in the 1920s to the U.S., and when I returned and eventually went to college, I discovered that many of the poems and writings that I so loved were not available in English. And uh, I think I can say this without any undue harshness that we're rather lazy as a culture about learning languages, Americans. And uh, so I began translating for my friends poems by poets like Rilke, and he was a favorite. And I think at the time I was, you know, I was a late in my late teen, early twenties. I was discovering a world of an imaginative world, a daring world of feeling and of seeing and of sensing in Rilke's writings. That uh, that just staggered me, and and so it was in a sense out of a, a sense of loyalty to Rilke as a writer, but also loyalty to my friends and those who were also interested in this in this adventure really, that he proposes through his writings, that I began translating his work, and that went on for 25 years really, until I eventually began to think about pulling some of those translations together and published what was the what is the first edition, first version of the earliest edition 
a, a series of poems, a, a cycle of poems that eventually became the first part of, of Rilke's Book of Hours. And it was that book that really made him, brought him to international attention, not simply within Germany or the German speaking and reading world, but uh, within the European context. That's a that's a huge contribution. I know his um, poetry, his prayers have been um, just really pivotal for so mm. many people and really meaningful. Um, as far as Meister Eckhart, could you give us a little bit of an orientation to who he was in his time, how he was received in his time and who he was? And then uh, your partner in crime, John Sweeney, uh, gave me a couple questions to ask you about him to mm-hmm. help the listeners understand some of this work. Sure. Well, Meister Eckhart was one of the most adventurous and radical and daring thinkers of his time. He was born in the middle of the 13th century, and he died in the early decades of the 14th centuries, sometime around 1328, 1329. We don't really know the exact death date. He disappeared, as it were, returning from uh, a trial that he, he that he was called to, to defend his writings, or at least propositions from his writings, 28 of them, that were considered either heretical or questionable uh, in the church of his day. So he journeyed to Avignon, which is where the popes were in the 14th century, defended himself, and on his way back to Cologne, somewhere along the way, he died. I think it's somehow fitting that we don't know where he is, that we don't have his relics, we don't have his bones. He was, as as you can surmise from that point, he was um, under suspicion from some of the authorities of his day, not all of them, by any means. He was a widely popular preacher. He preached uh, in the vernacular uh, across Central Europe, particularly in the area we think of today as Germany, the Germanic uh, territories of the time, and uh, along the Rhine River. And and uh, he comes from a place not too far from where Martin Luther comes from. He studied in Erfurt, in the city of Erfurt, in the former East Germany, in the eastern part of Germany today. Uh, became a Dominican at, at, a, at an early age, uh, entered the Dominican order for his studies, was eventually sent to Cologne, and then later to Paris, where he completed his studies. Um, he was, as a Dominican, uh, in an order that prized preaching. I mean, the real name of the order is the Order of Preachers. You see it abbreviated OP, uh, the Order of Preachers. And um, he was an intellectual. There's no question about it. He prized careful thinking and rigorous thinking and methodical thinking. He was a scholastic theologian through and through, but his preaching exploded open the kind of narrower parameters of logical argument uh, with these remarkable images, metaphors, ways of imagining, ways of daring to think about, not simply about God, but about the human and about our openness to transcendence. So he came under suspicion, first by the bishop in Cologne, uh, and, and later the, he, he actually called for his case to be adjudicated to the papal court, which is what happened then in the last year of his life. 
Why, why do you think that was? Well, he felt that he was unfairly criticized, that he to choose 28 sentences out of a out of uh, volumes of thinking and writing and teaching, he felt was an insufficient way of measuring his thought. And he tried in his own defense, and we have a record of his defense, actually, he, he sought to contextualize his own thought and to clarify why it was, you know, why it was uh, in keeping with scripture and with the inherited traditions of the church, even as it was daring to move in new directions. Uh, why I wonder why John wanted me to ask you what was a century later was there a change then in how he was thought of well people were nervous a century later in the 15th century that was a very nervous period of time this is before the reformation period uh, there were um, moves afoot to try to close down on orthodox thinking there were movements that were springing up in the 14th and early 15th century, the Lollard movement, followers of John Wycliffe, uh, translating the Bible into English, uh, prizing a different understanding of authority uh, in the cultivating of Christian community. So there were lots of movements, women's communities. In fact, Eckhart spent part of his time commissioned, actually, to um, preach to the so-called Beguines, who were, uh, this was a, a movement really in the Low Countries and Northern Germany during the, primarily in the late uh, 13th and early 14th centuries, during Eckhart's lifetime. And they were lay women who did not take lifelong vows but lived together in community and sought to uh, cultivate an order of prayer and a, and a Christian witness. But they were considered somehow not quite under the thumb of the church. And some of their thinking may have been radical, although we most of what we know about the Beguines, we know through their those who condemned them, and that's never a very good way of judging what people thought. So a hundred years after Eckhart's death, uh, his writings were still vaguely known, but not widely circulated. And they really only came to light in the modern era when there was a kind of resurgence of interest in mysticism and a recovery of traditions like Eckhart's writings uh, from largely neglected tomes from the later Middle Ages. Well, one of the things you said was that he preached in the vernacular, and I don't want that to be lost on people because that is a, that's very key, that's a very interesting point. Um, can you kind of underscore what, what that means in, in, a, in a deeper way? Absolutely. The vernacular meaning the mother tongue, the common language of the people. The, the church's language in the Western church, in the European church since, uh, since the early centuries, had been Latin. It was in a way understandable. It was a world, what became a world movement, Christianity, and they needed a common language to communicate across these cultural differences and distances. Um, the late, later Middle Ages saw a proliferation, really, of the vernacular as a way of communicating with people. Francis of Assisi famously wrote only in the Italian of his day, which is a kind of modernized Latin, after all. Uh, and after Eckhart's death, a uh, hundred years later, Julian of Norwich, again, famously, at least we can say that today, wrote in English, probably the first writings by a, a woman theologian in English that we have. So the later Middle Ages, one might even call it a vernacular age. It was an age 
when churchmen began to realize, and church women, I should add, began to realize that communicating with the masses required moving beyond Latin. And indeed, many of the priests of Beckhardt's day, probably not including the Dominicans who were highly educated, but your typical parish priest in rural Germany, appointed, after all, by the by the duke, uh, not by the bishop. That's another story for another podcast. Uh, they may have they may have had only enough Latin to read the the office, uh, the prayers, and to uh, recite certain familiar uh, texts like the Our Father. They may have understood very little Latin otherwise. So, in a way, Eckhart's move to Lat to away from Latin. He he wrote in Latin. His academic treatises were all written in Latin, but his move to preaching in the vernacular was part of a wider tradition in his day. What I'm so surprised about when I read um, Eckhart is that, and and this can have something to do with the translation into English, but that it sounds so modern, and it it's uh, it really moves me um, to read his work. And maybe you can pull out a, a few things that are um, meaningful to you, or that kind of exemplify some of um, the. There's such a deep quality, um, and, and there's such a mm-hmm. contemplative um, mysticism. Uh, but it's very, it, uh, it's not too heady but or anything, but it's it's relatable. And I think that mm-hmm. there are a lot of people, even across, even outside of Christian tradition, who have appreciated his work. Um, and I think it's it's just, um, it seems like, a, and as you're describing him, it seems like it, he's pastoral in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly true. Let me that you've asked a whole we'll open up a whole variety of things to talk about here. The first is I should say that the two books that John Sweeney and I uh, wrote together and and have published over the last several years are not strictly speaking translations. That is, they're not narrowly rendering from from Eckhart's German uh, into contemporary English. Indeed, the first translation that does have to happen with Eckhart is to translate him from medieval uh, German into modern German, because a contemporary German reader would have great difficulty reading uh, Eckhart's German, the same difficulties that you and I would have trying to read Chaucer uh, 50 years later than Eckhart to read Chaucer's English. We, We understand some of the words but often the words leave us utterly clueless. So the first work of translation has to be into modern German or into any modern idiom. What John and I sought to do is something a little different. We're giving voice to Eckhart's thought and giving it poetic voice, which is in one sense close to the heart of how Eckhart thought. He was a poetic theologian when he preached. He sought images, metaphors, he told stories, he responded to life situations in his preaching which was, after all, what every good preacher is called to do. But he did it with an originality that was startling for his own day. It may be why his public preaching attracted fairly large uh, congregations of people. They were curious. They were perhaps confused by what he was saying. They were certainly startled by it and provoked by it. And many apparently were inspired by it. So that needs to be said, first of all, our work is a kind of double translation. It's a a rendering from Eckhart's medieval German into into a modern idiom, but it's also rendering it in poetic form. And 
Eckhart didn't write poems. He wrote sermons, he wrote academic treatises, but his sermons are poetic at their core. Uh, they're also, I would say, scholastic at their core. That is, they were using the careful notions of logical argument that were familiar to the Dominican and indeed to university teachers of his day, of which he was a celebrated one, celebrated professor at the University of Paris on two different occasions. So it's a kind of double translation that we're doing. And in some ways, it's trying to to get at the very heart, the living pulse of Eckhart's thought and rendering it in a form, in these short poetic forms that can, in, in a sense, energize our own imagination. Now here, let me read you one rather than simply theoretically talk about it. This is called Love Shines and it's from Meister Eckhart's book of the heart, Meditations for the Restless Soul, published in 2017. Love shines even as my thoughts about you fade, for you are always present to me beyond what I think or feel or do. And when I turn to you and accept you in this simple way, I have you in every way and in all things, and you shine out in me as the love that cannot cease love shines. Now, in a way, Eckhart didn't write those lines, but those thoughts from beginning to end are in his sermons. And if you had this book in your hand, you could turn to the back and you'd find a list of the poems with the citations where the primary impulse for the poem comes from. So if you were so inclined, you could dig out that sermon of Eckhart's, read it in its full context, and you'd find an even fuller and more nuanced elaboration of the theme that, that love is shining, God is shining, love is shining in everything that is, and in all of our the, the dimensions of our lives, even when we feel burdened only with darkness, only with discouragement, only with despair. Eckhart would say, but that doesn't mean that love is not shining there. It's there. It's hidden, perhaps, but it's there. And our work is not to somehow feel happier or feel better or uh, feel more positive. No, you can't tell a depressed or disturbed person that. But you can say, in the midst of that darkness is a flickering light, what Eckhart called a funkline, a little spark, that nothing that life brings in its darkest and most difficult moments, nothing can extinguish that. Now, if you hear that phrase, you hear a phrase, a lines from the Apostle Paul, often read at um, funerals, that says essentially the same thing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing, neither height nor depth, neither principalities nor powers. Paul elaborates, the Apostle Paul elaborates a whole series of things that declare that we are inseparable from the divine. Eckhart, that's a core belief from Meister Eckhart. Meister is not his first name. Meister simply means the master. He's the only theologian from the Middle Ages who acquired that kind of uh, way of being named as the master. And I think it was in part this brilliant capacity to dig into the depths of the scriptural and theological traditions and bring them, twist them, turn them in fresh ways that created 
sometimes disturbing and often remarkably energizing moments of insight, like this one, that love shines. another one you could read to us give us another glimpse well here's one from Meister Eckhart's book of secrets just published a few months ago 2019 it's called become love and Eckhart delighted in paradox he delighted in surprising us into seeing that what we thought was a contradiction belongs in its wholeness to where we stand at the moment of seeing that apparent contradiction so this poem gets at that I think brilliantly, become love. If you want to know God, become love. If you want to know others, become love. If you want to know yourself, become love. And if you want to know love, forget all you thought you knew or needed to know and become love. Now, has anybody, uh, I've, I've heard this myself, and especially true in this poem here, um, this sounds a lot like the Sufi poet Rumi, yes. uh, the divine love poems of Rumi. Yes. And uh, um, I'm, I'm assuming it's because of the, the, just the grounding in, in divine love is <laughs> things get a little simpler when you really focus there. But do they you have do. anything to say? Oh, on absolutely. That? Rumi's uh, a, a, a younger an older contemporary, I should say. Uh, he's living in the 13th century, so he's living in the century into which Eckhart was born. Eckhart lives a longer life into the 14th century. But Rumi wrote hundreds, thousands and thousands of poems inspired by love. And in point of fact, I think it's, it's fair to say that if you go ever more deeply into the nature of love, you find that the things that seem to separate us in our religious and cultural traditions tend to fade away. Eckhart knew that. He knew that if you go to the root of things, that's where the word radical comes from, radus is a root. If you go to the root of things, if you go to the root of God, which is the root of love, what you find is a unity that in one sense um, pushes aside all of the things that seem to separate us and divide us in the formal structures of religion, in the doctrinal formulations of varying religious traditions, and in the practices. At the heart of religion, one might say, which comes from the Latin, the binding, the binding thing we call religion, at the heart of religion is the impulse of love. And we move aside from that, we ignore that, we deny that to our peril. And when we do deny love as the heart of, of the Christian religion, but I would say of every religious tradition, we deny something essential about ourselves. That, that's what this poem is about. And we deny the open doorway that might, that might bring us into a wider and more inclusive community than we otherwise would dare or imagine uh, being part of. Thank you so much for that, Mark. I think um, that is very poignant and, and spot on. I um, have 
you know, when you're going to source, when you're going to God, the mm. source of love, the the originator of of all things and of love. Um, that that's how we get centered down, and that's why I, I really love these books. I highly recommend these to my listeners. Um, that they they're just little they're just little um, poems that you could read a few in the morning or a few at night before you go to bed, or ju- and it's just a great way to sort of set the tone and to meditate on them, as you might the Psalms and maybe write. Beside the Psalms, you could do a little mm-hmm. of both, um, but it's it's exactly the kind of thing um, that can kind of quiet the soul. I it's kind of it's kind of the recipe for that we need uh, more often is to find things that can mm-hmm. bring us to solace and uh, the solitude of the soul that um, isn't always solitude isn't always privacy it's it's mm-hmm. you know it's um yeah. it's a it's a condition of the soul so um those are treasures i thank you so much for for to you and john mm. for creating those mm. um i was thinking that um is, is there any other thing you'd like to read or, or mention before we move on to uh rilke well i uh, i would say that well, thank you for the compliment about these books they, they've been a joy to work with john is one of the most uh, a, a marvelous collaborators with whom I've worked over many years of collaborating on different kinds of projects. I think in part because um, John and I come at Eckhart from very different backgrounds, but with a similar sense of the of the kind of tenacious audacity of his thinking and of its importance for modern people. I think we need to be, you talked about solitude as a place that brings us together. I think that's true. Often the only way to come out of a world of noise is to be jarred loose from our, I would almost say, infatuation with conflict. And it may mean that that the way you've talked about solitude, I would fully agree with this, that solitude is is not a place where it's not an end point. It's a, it's a passing through point that brings us back into community, back into relationships, including difficult, even embattled relationships uh, that seem to be marking our cultural, the agony of our cultural moment in the United States. And in, in fact, I would say that's that's sweeping across Europe as well. Um, this hardening of boundaries and the uh, rendering uh, of community as something tenuous and ever more precious for that very reason. Yeah, and and to your point, um, poetry of this sort um, is is the kind of medicine that, it, that isn't sort of inoculating us against each other, but making us supple towards each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a function of of I would say inspired, divinely inspired poetry, mm. as I would say mm-hmm. it is, um, that that is so um, nourishing to our souls. It's, it is so connecting us to God and to others that um, it can't help but if we sink deeply into it, it can't help but nurture us and, and grow us closer. Absolutely. And the connection is the key. And you said it well. We can't connect with God if we're not connecting with others. And we can't connect with others if we're not connecting with our own what Eckhart simply called the ground within each one of us. It's that grounding, grund in the German, very simple word. It's the ground of who we are that we're in common with others who are perhaps wildly different than us. 
Uh, and it's that same ground that is the very nature of God. So in some ways, our discovering, in, and I think we do it best in solitude, it could be the solitude found in the middle of a rock concert, for all I know, that is the sense of coming to a place of grounding. So solitude is not the absence of sound, because uh, that would be a false understanding. Solitude is a sense of rootedness in what's real. And for many, that means being in a quiet place, but it's it's not about uh, the absence of noise, or at least the absence of external noise. Solitude is about the absence, the uncluttering of the inner noise that makes it so difficult for us to live with joy, with freedom, with spontaneity, I would even say with dignity. So Rilke is another poet uh, I discovered early on, and uh, some of, of our listeners will be old enough to remember the late 1960s and early 1970s, a period of tremendous social upheaval in this country and indeed across the world. Uh, and it was the time when Rilke was being, not the first time he was translated in, into English, but it was a poet named Robert Bly who um, put together, published some of the earliest books, anthologies, collections of, of Rilke's poems that rooted him in a wide imagination within North American culture. And so we, we owe a great debt to Robert Bly for those early translations. They were somewhat free, they were vigorous, they, were, they carried something of the excitement uh, of Rilke's own culture and indeed of that period of ferment and change and challenge that marked the 19, late 1960s and, and 1970s. Um, I came upon those translations, uh, as did many, and wanted more. And there weren't that many of Rilke's poems translated at that time, so I began uh, to translate my own versions of his poems. Uh, I, you mentioned the book, my book, Prayers of a Young Poet. Um, this is the first part of what became the Book of Hours, written when Rilke was in his mid-20s. So in the early part of this century, the first part, which constitutes this book, he wrote uh, 68 poems in a matter of three weeks in 1899, after returning from a very important for him, a very a, a decisive, his first trip, his first trip to Russia. The, the Russia before the revolution, the old czarist Russia, one has to say. And it was the experience in Russia that uh, utterly changed something important in Brilka. He, for the first time, found a language uh, of, of devotion, of piety, uh, of popular piety, I should add, that connected with something essential in him. He'd just come a year earlier from his first trip to Italy, and there was taken by the, the spirituality of light, if I can put it that way, that he discovered in Florence and Venice and the churches and the cathedrals. Uh, churches really shaped by the kind of Baroque sensibilities, um, even though many of them are much earlier than that in their origins. But that sense of, of openness and light. And uh, when Rilke traveled to Russia, he discovered something quite different. And that was what one might call today the spirituality of the dark or of darkness. 
And one has to envision, he went to Moscow with his beloved Lou Andrea Salome, his traveling companion, his lover, uh, and his lifelong mentor, 14 years his elder. Uh, she came from a family from St. Petersburg, a German-Russian family. And um, this began his lifelong fascination with Russian culture, with the Russian language, and with Russian spirituality, if I can call it that. Uh, and he and Lou arrived on Good Friday in the Orthodox Good Friday and spent much of that weekend in the Kremlin, the old inner city of Moscow, wandering from church to church, from monastery to monastery. For those who've been to the Kremlin, you know that it's not simply this, this the seat of Soviet power and of Russian power, uh, political power. It's the heart of the Orthodox faith in Moscow. And um, Rilke was so drawn to this. He, he discovered a light in the darkness, that light comes out of the darkness and not simply light being poured into the darkness. And one can imagine this from the churches. There were almost no windows in these churches. They were filled with icons from floor to ceiling, including on the columns. One can see that today if one visits uh, these churches in the, in the Kremlin. And uh, the theme of darkness just resounds through his poems. Let me read one. Uh, and this first version of the poems that came up, came to, to make up uh, the first part of the Book of Hours, he simply called Dikabete, the prayers. And he gave it as a gift to Lou, his beloved friend, lover, mentor, Lou, uh, upon completing it in September 1899. This version includes what we might almost think of as program notes today, they're little descriptions of what was happening to the writer when he was writing the poems. And Rilke tells us the writer is an Orthodox monk. And in fact, not simply an Orthodox monk, an icon painter, or the Orthodox would say, a writer of icons. So this is in the words of the monk, the you is always then directed toward God, the you uh, over against whom we stand in our lives. And this is the note that Rilke gives to this poem. And then the old monk gave thanks with a liberated heart and wrote, and here comes a poem. You darkness from which I come, I love you more than the flame that bounds the world, shining in a single ring beyond which no creature knows of it. But the darkness seizes everything folds and flames, how it grasps them, people and powers. And it is possible that a great strength stirs near where I dwell. I believe in nights. It's an amazing poem. I mean, in a way we could spend hours simply thinking about the depth of insight, the kind of precious wisdom that sings through these lines. But this beginning frame, you darkness from which I come, we all come from the darkness. We come from the darkness of the womb, our mother's womb, and Rilke would say the darkness of God's womb. He envisioned God as a tangle of roots under the surfaces of things, under the surfaces of trees, this this tangle of roots that brings the energy into the tree, the, the sap, the life, the life blood of the tree 
into the into the up into the branches. Roka knew that God was that that darkness that we come from, and that darkness that holds everything together. That's a, a stunning thought, in a sense. I mean, in a way, it wasn't stunning to the first astronauts who found themselves in space, looking at this. We all have this image in our minds. This. This orb, this blue orb, suspended in this infinite blackness of space. It's a remarkable image. And it's way ahead of Rilke's time. He couldn't have envisioned that. He didn't know that space was dark. Nobody really knew that in Rilke's day, and that's not that long ago. It comes with Einstein later, the first glimmerings of that. But that's another story for another podcast. But I, I love where this poem ends. The simple claim, I believe in nights, N-I-G-H-T-S. I believe in nights. And for Rilke, that, sim- that didn't simply mean I turn away from the day, but it means it is in the darkness that I discover something essential to who I am, essential to who we are, essential to who or what God is. And that's, you know, that's not a new theme. Rilke didn't discover it. It's there in Eckhart. It's there in the so-called mystics across religious traditions that God is a light so immense that we encounter it as darkness, an image that we find in Aristotle. He said we're like bats who come out of the cave and cannot see because the light is overwhelming to us. That was Aristotle in the centuries before the time, the common era. Thomas Aquinas takes that same theme, makes it central to his writing, the great theologian, Dominican theologian, a generation before Eckhart, that, that in a sense, the, the, the presence of truth is so overwhelming to us that we cannot begin to see it. We encounter it as darkness, although it is a radiance, an overwhelming light. It's in Eckhart, it's in Rilke, it's in, I would say, the poetic tradition that understands that that the heart of our humanness is 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 not is not obscured in the darkness, but it is hidden in the darkness. It is in some sense held in the darkness, and it's for us to to discover that darkness. Yeah, and we tend to fear it, I think. Fear what we can't see, what we don't know, and um, that God is is the God of darkness and light, and there isn't anything unknown to God. And so we can, you know, that's, that's where that the faith comes in. If you're, if you love the, if you love the night, you know, you're, you're loving seen and unseen to you so it's it's a very profound absolutely yeah absolutely and, and in a way darkness is disturbing it it uh it's unsettling it's it's it, it makes us at times fearful because we cannot see as clearly what happens when we enter into a truly dark space is that it takes time for our eyes just the physiology the optical phys, uh, the physiology of optics it takes time for the eye to adjust to darkness. Uh, neuroscientists would say, optical scientists would say, it takes about a half an hour before the eye is sufficiently rested and the pupils sufficiently uh, dilated that we can actually begin to see much more clearly. 
And, you know, that takes time and it takes patience. And indeed, as you suggest, it takes courage because uh, there's something in us that doesn't like the dark, that doesn't feel comfortable with the dark, whether it's the physical darkness or the darkness that is created through tragedy, through trauma in our lives um, and leaves us at times completely incapacitated. Uh, and Rilke said, would say, and Eckhart with him, that uh, it takes time for us. We have to learn to sit in that dark space and allow ourselves to befriend it before we can begin to to live more more freely, uh, less fearfully, and more courageously. It's amazing how young he was. I, I'm marveling at that as he's writing this. Yeah. Well, he was young, and you know, it, 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 and, and insights like this do not come to somebody who has not suffered mightily. And Rilke suffered uh, extraordinarily as a young person. He was not the daughter his mother hoped for. She had lost a daughter uh, a little more than a year before Rilke was born. She named him not Reiner, but Rene, which was an ambivalent name, but in the German at least, uh, has much more of a feminine overtone. It was Lou Andreas Salome, his first real love, who told him, you've got to change your name. You have to have a different, you can't go through life with the name Rene. Uh, and, and she suggested Reiner. So that's not his given name. But, uh, but his mother it was a difficult marriage, his parents' marriage. They finally separated. Um, he was brought up by a, a, an overbearing mother with a suffocating piety, Catholic piety. It came out of the, the sort of Austrian culture of her day. He was born in Prague, raised not in Germany, but in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Again, in the latter 19th century, he was born in 1875. And his mother eventually sent him to a military school to harden him up. And that was devastating for him. I mean, he, 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 he suffered enormously from being uh, bullied, from being marginalized, from being ostracized by his classmates and indeed by the structure of the school, begged his parents to let him return. They finally did when he was about 14. And uh, he took entrance exams to university, studied for those on his own a very different system of entering university in those days, eventually was admitted, never finished uh, any university uh, degree. He never finished anything that we would call school. Uh, was a self-taught person, was an intellectual of the highest order. But again, this understanding of darkness came from this long period of intense inner suffering and outer suffering for that matter. I think only somebody who's who's been forced through that darkness and survived it, I should add, can ever speak or write meaningfully and helpfully about it. And Rilke is one of those survivors. Thank you for speaking to that. Um, I'm not as familiar with him as, just just on the surface, I'm familiar with him. And I read Letters to a Young Poet, um, which is kind of the, everybody's favorite, I guess, in, in the United States, maybe. Um, Yes. Is there anything else that you would like to pull out or, or read to us um, as we're going through this one? Well, you know, the letters to Young Pope was written uh, during the time that he was writing the Book of Hours. 
he wasn't really an old poet himself. He was in his mid-20s, later 20s, and a younger poet, uh, a man named Franz Kapus, who was 19 at the time, wrote to Rilke, who was already an established poet uh, in, in the culture of his day, hoping that Rilke would, would affirm uh, Franz's uh, desire to become a poet. And he sent some poems and said, am I a poet? And in the very first letter, uh, which these letters were pu published posthumously after Rilke's death, by the way, they become one of the best sellers of all of his writings, for good reason, 11 letters, a thin volume that probably changed your life, Lisa, as it certainly did mine when I read them as a uh, person in my late teens. Um, in that first letter, Rilke writes back and said, I can't tell you this. I can't, I can't tell you. I can't be the judge of whether you're a poet. But I can tell you this, that you will only become a poet if you burn for this beyond everything else. I'm using my own words here. I don't have the text in front of me. And in those letters, went on to speak about all of the great, the, the issues, the questions that we struggle with that Rilke struggled with then and that we still do today, the question of death, the question of creativity, the question of, of um, what sex is, what love means, what solitude is all about. These are all in those letters. And indeed, they're in the poems that he was writing at the very same time. Here's the beginning of one that gets at this very notion. It starts like this, and I'll only read the first few lines. I believe in everything <clears throat> that has not yet been said. I want to free my most pious feelings. What no one has ever dared to want will suddenly become my nature. It's an amazing opening of a prayer. He's writing this as a prayer to God. I believe in everything that has not yet been said. This was for Rilke's first readers, a shock to imagine that faith, that, that whatever faith means, that faith could come forth from, from the, the new moment of our experience, from the new instant of our understanding. And not simply from repeating what others had, had told us, what the priest or the minister uh, tutored us to believe about God, about the world, about ourselves. And that was Rilke. He wanted to say that whatever faith means, it has to be the deepest truth in our own experience. And it may be against the grain of tradition, whatever tradition, however we understood, understand tradition. But to have the courage to seize that insight and to claim it as a shaping force for our lives, that for Rilke was what faith really was about. And it's not a bad definition to my mind. It may mean retrieving the insights from the past, but it also may mean moving in completely new directions, uh, listening to very different voices, not simply the voices of the of the celebrated dead white males of the European tradition, but those thinkers and writers at the margins, the Eckharts, the Julian of Norwich's, the Hildegard of Bingen's, and I would say in that same frame, the early reformers uh, and on through the ages to the artists like Rilke, who dared to, in a sense, move tradition in very different directions than what he had inherited.
Yeah, and what you're speaking to and, and what I think he's getting at as well is we're talking about something beyond what's passed down to us and beyond uh, beliefs that we're supposed to assent to even if we don't believe them. Uh, mm. It's the spirituality right. lived out that he's speaking to, um, that it, it's it's the daily lived out truths that, um, that have flesh on them and flesh and blood yes. to them um, that is yes. that is the life-giving part of the journey of faith or, or what have you it, it's um, and I appreciate that too because you can gather wisdom from many places that um, that sustains you in this kind of um, spirituality lived out. I think I know what he's getting at as he as he speaks of it because it's it's got real meat on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you could say it's got meat on it, and it's if it's got meat on it, it's got blood in it. Um, it's got that life, the powerful surging life force that is the the marrow of who we are as human creatures. And if what we receive as tradition doesn't have that, then it's it's not worthy of our attention. It's um, it's probably just a distraction to keep us, in one sense, anesthetized against reality. And sadly, that's one function that religion has always played and continues to play. It gives some of us, uh, certainly not listeners to this podcast, but it gives some people a sense of security and a sense of being isolated from reality, the reality that they don't want to look at because it's unsavory, because it's unruly, because it's unorderly, because it somehow uh, transcends, transgresses the boundaries that they think are acceptable. And uh, in our the culture of our time, this is, um, I think, a, a huge issue that uh, in a sense, I think we're living through a, a, a kind of struggle between those who see the tradition as simply continuing what they inherited and those who see that inheritance as something that must be updated and sometimes either revised or even discarded for the sake of what life is calling us to, what love is calling us to, and for many of us, what God is calling us to. I was gonna say that one of the, one of the poems that, uh, that I have long loved and often uh, use in my own teaching with students is um, a poem that begins, well, the German is uh, very simple. Wer du auch seist, it begins like this. Whoever you are, in the evening go out of the little room where you know everything. That's how it begins. And this is metaphor. I mean, that's what great poems are always about about metaf they're metaphoric. Let me read the first lines in German because it's ex exquisitely beautiful. Wer du auch seist, am Abend tritt hinaus aus deiner Stube, drin du alles weißt, was letztes vor der Ferne liegt dein Haus, wer du auch seist. It's called Entrance, the poem is called Entrance, Eingang, and it's the opening poem from a collection of poems that he called the Book of images or the book of pictures, uh, the book of, yeah, the book of images, often it's translated that way. And the lines mean this, whoever you are in the evening, go out of the little room where you know everything. For your house 
lies on the edges of distances, whoever you are. And it's a great, those are the opening four lines of a somewhat longer poem. But what Rilke is saying is that in some sense, if we simply cling to the security of what we know, we're living in a state of premature death. We've stopped imagining that the world can be different, that the world is larger, that the world is newer, that the world is, yes, more startling and perhaps even more terrifying to us because our certainties are not at the center of the certainties of others, of other cultures, of other peoples, of other religions, of other communities. This is such an essential call of what it means to be human, not simply in Rilke's day, but in our own, when we seem to be living in a time of increased hardenings of what I would call premature certainties, of ignorant, and I mean that quite literally, of ignorant certainties, certainties not informed by the wisdom that others might bring, whether it's others from another ethnic or racial tradition from another gendered uh, condition, uh, from other gendered realities, uh, from other religious communities, that in some sense, we have this amazing moment in, our, in the culture of our day to open ourselves to worlds that our, many of our ancestors didn't, couldn't have known existed, living in little villages. I think of my own relatives in the Black Forest, coming from the Black Forest region of Germany. My grandparents were among the first to leave just after the so-called Great War in the early 1920s. Most of them stayed there. They stayed in that wonderful community uh, where the certainties were clear, where the traditions were clear. When I arrived uh, in that community in the 1970s, the world was changing. There were different people moving into the neighborhood. They were welcomed, actually. They called them guest workers because the German economy was booming. And there were all of these foreigners who were needed to do the kinds of jobs that Germans either were unwilling to do or unable to do simply because there weren't enough people to fire this machine of industrial development that was happening. The assumption was those guest workers would return to Turkey mostly, or Italy, Southern European countries, once the, uh, the boom had, had reached its apex and the Germans were able to do this themselves. Of course, they stayed now three generations, four generations later. So many of my students, some of my students are third, third generation Turks who uh, are German citizens and Turkish citizens who speak fluent German. Uh, and often fluent Turkish, the world is changing. And uh, in some ways, the courage of brace, embracing that change is something that is a difficulty in, in Germany with the rise of nationalist parties, with uh, a kind of patriotism that is a, a similar version to what we hear in our own culture today of America first. Um, and in a sense, uh, belies the reality, the gift of what it means to encounter otherness, uh, a gift that these so-called guest workers have brought to Germany, not without challenges for them and for Germans. But in one sense, a poem like this one has a perennial wisdom in it, because it reminds us 
that reality is always changing. Culture is always changing. Communities are always changing. Uh, we in the United States have been an immigrant community since the first migrants arrived here across the Bering Straits from Russia. We call them native peoples, but they weren't native uh, when the land was that ancient. They were new discoverers of this land, as were the Europeans who came uh, thousands, a thousand years later. So in one sense, a poem like this one reminds us that our lives are larger and they're deeper and they're truer and they're more beautiful than what we thought they were in the security and comfort of the familiar. Uh, and that is as marvelous an invitation to growing up and growing into pluralism, into diversity as any that I could that I could discover. And that in four short lines. Remarkable. That's what poems can do. Well, let's move into your own poetry, which is is a delight to read. And, um, and tell a little bit about the story of what got you to pull together some of your own poetry and uh, t- tell us a little bit about The Chance of Home. Thank you. Well, The Chance of Home was published um, a year ago, 2018. Some of the poems are older, but all of them have been either written or rewritten in the last four or five years. Um, the title that uh, I came to with my publisher, uh, John Sweeney, who publisher for Paraclete Press, which brought out this book, um, came to me after John had rejected a couple of my early suggestions, rightly, I should add. And I came from the very last line of the poem that's the last poem in the book. Let me read that and I'll comment a little bit about this book. This somewhere is the name of the poem, This Somewhere. There must be a place where no one wonders whether you belong, where even your cares are joined by wind and cloud in their reverie. And this somewhere could be here and now, and is for some, though far removed from all who must face their pain without relief and wait for light to break the spell of their long nights and shadowed days. And all at once, I notice a pioneer weed rising at the edge of the city lot I walk by each day, a corner strewn with shards of glass and choked with neglect as deep as a stubborn late November fog. And there, atop a greening blade, a single yellow flower comes to crown this unlikely majesty, a reminder that not even the grit of loss or the grind of grief can ever finally stay the chance of home. I think that poem captures what this collection is about. It's, I didn't start out with the notion of the title, obviously, uh, or even that line from the poem. But as I pulled these poems together and worked on them over the years before publishing them in uh, 2018, it was clear that there's, this is a strand that, that binds these quite disparate poems together. Many are about the natural world, about the world of animals and birds, about the stubborn reality of trees, which I was surprised to realize how many of the poems 
like Rilke's early poems actually, um, rely on the image of trees to represent change and stability at the same time. They're poems that, to me, uh, give voice to what the great contemporary German poet Hilde Domin, she, she called herself, I'm the poet of the dennoch, trotzdem, of the nether, nevertheless. I'm the poet of the nevertheless. This is Hilda Domin, born in 1907, she, uh, 1909, she died in 2006 at a very ripe age, a German Jew who fled in the 1930s to Italy and eventually had to flee Italy, eventually found refuge in the Dominican Republic and changed her name from Löwenstein to Domin when she came back to Germany in the early 1950s, mid-1950s. Uh, as an act of gratitude to the country, the Dominican Republic, that gave her a home uh, and saved her, actually, from sure destruction in the uh, in the ovens of Auschwitz and um, and the death camps in Germany. She called herself the poet of the nevertheless, and I think in some ways these are poems of the nevertheless. They're poems that look, I hope, generously and certainly fiercely at the realities that we live in and discovers there a, a, a light, a flicker, well, what Eckhart would have called a funklein, a little spark that cannot be extinguished by the darkness, that refuses to be silenced by the jeering crowd. And I suppose that has to do with my own my own life story growing up in the 60s in a time of tremendous cultural upheaval and turmoil and being drawn to voices at that time, the Daniel Berrigans, the prophets of that age, Thomas Merton, who in a sense resisted the easy answers that the culture was offering and refused to be domesticated into false certainties, into premature certainties. We could talk more about that expansively another time, but these poems, I think, share something of that, of that edge of trying to sense how light, as the Apostle Paul described it, the light comes out of the darkness, not into the darkness, and he's talking about the creation story. He's doing a kind of what we would later Jews would call a midrash on the Genesis story. That God brings forth light out of the chaos, out of the darkness, separates the light and the dark so that we have day and night that we can see by day and learn to feel by night. Here's a poem to, to that point. It's called the, the Hungering Dark. And it begins with an epigram from the theologian writing at the cusp of the Middle Ages, at the end of late antiquity, Augustine uh, of Hippo, St. Augustine. What happens when we measure silence and say that a given period of silence lasted as long as a given sound? It's a remarkable moment. This is in his Confessions. What happens when we measure silence? I mean, that could, could be, could provoke a meditation that could last a few moments, 
a few minutes, a few days, a few years, a few lives. What happens when we measure silence? Uh, it's a stunning claim. But here's a poem. And it, it, it actually is a poem that it, it was inspired at a time not unlike the season uh, we're, we're living through right now, early Advent, late fall, early winter. I'm living in Maine at the moment. And for the most part, the geese have now passed overhead and they've moved further south. But this has to do with watching that yearly migration back to the south. It begins like this, the hungering dark. A lone goose drifts out across the empty crease of sky above stubbled fields below, not heeding the flock's broken line steering her course alone into the pooling magnitudes of night. From where I walk, I listen to her cry as she passes high above and singly by and wait, but hear no answer to her fervent call. Minutes pass as she pleads her case over and over against the crease of death a reminder of a gift once given and taken back again, a call that drifts on and on into the hungering dark. Death in the wide sense, the, the loss of, of what we cherish, the loss of what we long for, in this case, just watching a single goose separated from the V, you see, you know, the, the kind of, wedge crossing the sky from north to south uh, in the autumn days. And occasionally a goose, a goose uh, loses track and stops for reasons we can't know. And um, it's that sense of losing that continuity that's terrifying. It could be the loss of relationship in our own lives, the dissolving of a relationship we thought would be permanent, we thought would be, in some sense, we use the word lightly, eternal, which is taken from us in in ruptured relationship, in death, in illness, in despair. And, you know, in a, in a sense, there is a call that comes from our lives, even at those moments, into a darkness that is not an empty darkness, but it may be a hungering darkness. And when we can begin to see the darkness in that way, and perhaps that lone cry of our own, like the lone cry of the goose in this poem, might be met by another one who'd lost their way, another who'd lost their ground, who'd lost their path, and uh, is also crying out into the hungry dark. So, you know, darkness is something that is a chance for us to find each other, but in a very different way than we do flooded with the happiness and joy of our confident seasons in our lives. Um, I noticed that there are some headings in, how did you decide how you would collect these poems together? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. There are three sections. And in a sense, these were the three themes that, um, that have shaped my life, not just in these recent years, but I would say my life over the many years. Uh, the first part is called This Long Listening. 
And my own sense is that listening is one of the most essential and least practiced uh, forms of human attentiveness that we have, in part because we're bombarded now with noise all of the time. I'm always struck by that when I leave Europe and come back to the U.S. You cannot go through, in many cases, the music blares in, in, in speakers in the downtown region, certainly if you go into a mall. There's something affecting you all of the time. Uh, and we stop listening to it. We stop listening, period, because it's simply too much for us. So we, I think we were called as humans to, in a sense, a kind of obedience, a word which at its root is from the word to listen, to pay attention to, to listen to what's beyond us and what's within us. So this long listening. The second section, as true as song, if there's anything that I've realized in my own life over these years, it's that song is one of the truest forms of communication that we have. Uh, I was giving a radio interview a few years ago in Australia when I was there on a, a reading tour, a speaking tour. The interviewer provocatively opened by saying, you know, nobody listens, nobody reads poetry anymore. Poetry's gone. It's, I, it's so out of sync with our times. How can you dare to, to come here and read poetry? I said, well, look, when this program is over and, and uh, your hearers turn the radio dial to another station, they're going to they're encounter poetry. It, it's what we live in. We live in poetry. We call it music. We call it folk music. We call it rap music. We call it hip hop. We call it, uh, uh, we call, we call it ballads. Whatever it is, we live in music. We've always lived in music. As far as we know, humans have cultivated the capacity of the voice to do something unnecessary but essential, and that is to sing, to find something beyond the cadences of our spoken language, which if you looked at, at, at the cadences of my speaking language or of yours, any of us, we're always within maybe five or six or seven notes on the musical scale. But I can sing three scales, and everyone can sing two. So we can sing far more expansively than we can speak. Birds know this. They never had to learn. They sing without regard for the necessities of mating. They sing when they mate, but they sing all year long, and they're not mating all year long. So what's going on with song? There's something there with song that's so essential that, to me, it reminds us of something that belongs to the heart of our human condition. And here's a poem that says that from that section, what we're made for, with an epigram from a marvelous contemporary uh, philosopher, French philosopher named Jean-Louis Chrétien. Song opposes the power of distance. There's another line to spend a long time pondering. Song opposes the power of distance. It's a short poem in couplets, eight lines long. There are at least three reasons to sing, because we can, sometimes because we must, and yes, because in the deep down truth at the heart of things, silence does not deserve the last word, because after all is said and done, we're not made for the clarities of prose alone, but for what song can bring of solace and delight. 
So that's the second section. The last one is an everlasting yes, and um, it begins with two lines, the opening two lines of uh, a poem from a poet I cherish beyond, I would say, all others, Wallace Stevens. These are the lines from Stevens. After the final no, there comes a yes, and on that yes, the future world depends. After the final no, there comes a yes, and on that yes, the future world depends. That is an amazing declaration of faith in its purest and truest form. We live in a world of no's. We hear them all the time. No, you can't do this. No, we shouldn't do that. No, that's not possible. And in one sense, there is a truth in the no's. It's not all fiction. It's not all bad fiction, but it's not the final word. And Stevens, uh, among, I would say, all poets, whether they say it or not, speak forth out of the conviction that there is a yes on which the future, what Stevens called the future world, depends. There is an affirmation that is stronger than all the negations that seem to be burdening uh, society and culture, ours in our own day, his in his day. And it's that the claim of that yes that is, I think, subversive and radical, and even, if I dare to say this, prophetic, uh, whether it's a poet writing, uh, a rapper rapping, an artist creating, uh, whatever it might be, that in every single form of life, the no's don't deserve and shouldn't have the last word. And so this is a, a section called An Everlasting Yes. Let me simply read the first poem, which is about a season yet to come. But as I look out on my backyard, which in the spring will be covered with crocuses, I know that the crocuses are there, even though nothing of them is showing. The Promise of Green. Another spring stirs from winter's hold with the hoped for and hidden waiting to be revealed. Once more songbirds return to fill the crease of morning with the radiance of their song, their music drifting about among trees thick with silence and the promise of green. And I want to believe that love is stronger than death and forgiveness deeper than the habits of hate. And I want to know that what now lasts and always will is the lure of an everlasting yes. I mean, that sums it up. There's nothing really more that needs to be added. And I think each of us is called to glimpse that truth and to give form to it in our lives um, in whatever ways we uniquely can. Um, and that's why, you know, Eckhart was writing poetic theology in his day. And Rilke was writing poetic uh, witness in his day and why I continue to write poems in our day. Now, can you share with um, the people listening where they can find you online to find out more about your work or, or other information? Sure. My website's probably the best place to start, MS 
Burroughs. It's M-S-B-U-R-R-O-W-S dot com. Um, you'll find some a selection of poems, uh, some podcasts, some uh, academic uh, lectures I've given that were videoed, and uh, quite a few less formal things. Uh, so that's that's a good place to start. Obviously, the books are available at your local bookstore, and if you can't find a local bookstore, then you can order them through Amazon.com. Uh, the Eckhart books, other translations of Rilke and of the Iranian-German poet, contemporary poet, the Said, whose book of poems, 99 Psalms, I translated about five years ago. That's a book worth another podcast. Yeah, we didn't even get to my own poetry. We didn't even get to that one. I forgot about that one. Um, I that's the one yeah. I didn't crack open, um, but that looks fantastic. Well, you're you're in yeah. for a treat. It's a remarkable collection of yeah. poems by a by a truly inspiring uh, voice uh, from this sort of um, how would I call it the hybridity of those who live across cultures of an Iranian refugee to Germany who spent his life uh, in Germany and has become one of the most respected, uh, widely esteemed poets writing in German uh, in, in our day. Well, that's probably a great place to wrap it up. I am just delighted that we got to have this conversation and you could share some of your work and you definitely have an open invitation anytime you send a book my way come back on and and let's do this again I, it was a balm for the soul thank you lisa it was great to talk with you and i i wish uh, all of our listeners every blessing uh, of um, life and of love and uh, some glimpse of that everlasting yes that is stronger than every everything else uh, that speaks against it. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.